welcome to the last programme in the current series of The Big Idea. I'm Douglas Kerr. This week, our topic is evidence. Now, we persuade people of the rightness of our theories and assertions by logic or by evidence, or a combination of the two. Evidence is a key concept in a number of domains, though it means different things to a lawyer, a scientist, or a historian. We love evidence. Fictional crime stories nearly always turn on evidential drama, and the classic detective, like Sherlock Holmes, is expert at making material discoveries, a footprint, a bloodstain, a stolen document, that prove the guilt or innocence of parties suspected or unsuspected by the police. These adventures may not, however, correspond very closely to actual police or legal procedure. Evidence can support, test or falsify a theory. It's the main business of courtroom testimony, of humanistic research and of the experimental method of the sciences. It may be direct or circumstantial, but as Henry David Thoreau said, some circumstantial evidence is very strong as when you find a trout in the milk. But what counts as evidence? Can it conclusively and permanently prove a truth? Both scientists and lawyers have strict rules about what constitutes evidence, how it can be obtained and presented, what makes it admissible or not. And interestingly, the testimony of both scientists and legal witnesses is underwritten by a declaration of honour. And this is one thing that makes the production and disputation of evidence an always fascinating human drama. So this week I'm taking evidence about evidence from two eminent legal figures, Simon Young and Marco Wan, both associate deans in the Faculty of Law at the University of Hong Kong and both old friends of this program. So, Professor Simon Young, let me put the first question to you, and that is this. To a lawyer, what does evidence mean? It's useful, I think, to begin with the context of uh, criminal process and uh, what sometimes we call the forensic process. Uh, one thing to bear in mind is the history of jury trials. Uh, so in the past, uh, jury trials were much more common, now uh, less common, uh, almost non-existent in civil process. Uh, still pre- important in criminal process, but more for the uh, serious cases. And the fact that you had juries meant that you had to have special rules to protect the the process uh, and, and also the nature of evidence that was put before the jury. Um, another important distinction that lawyers like to make is that between facts and evidence and that when you have a jury that has to make the final decision as to whether or not someone is guilty or not guilty, um, it's th- those decisions have to be made on facts uh, and not evidence alone. Evidence is not the same thing as facts. That's right. And that evidence is one way of coming to uh, facts. It's the predominant way. Uh, and that's how we normally think of the trial process. But there are other ways to come, come to facts. Judges, for example, uh, do something known as taking judicial notice, where it's, it's, it, where you have a fact that's just so uh, notorious and so well-known, they'll just say that, that we, we accept that, everyone knows that, uh, and we don't need evidence of that. That's another way of get, getting facts before uh, the decision-maker. Uh, but the evidence is really the, the meat and potatoes of the trial pro- process. Um. Marco, uh, my experience of evidence is, of course, based almost entirely on um, novels and TV programs and and so on. Um, Presumably, not many cases turn on a 
a simple piece of material evidence, like a smoking gun or something. You know, one of the interesting things about literary discourse is that very often it, it questions notions of of evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this this legal idea that you know evidence is is that which is evident. Um, you know, very often within the trade discourse, you see a kind of questioning of this idea that the evidence is what is evident. Um, so, you know, you think of something like um, the novels of Wilkie Collins, or Wilkie Collins, who had legal training. He was he was a law student, um, and you know, much of his novels, as he says, has said explicitly, you know, is based on this idea of. Uh, mimicking what happens in the trial. I um, mean, he, he's mm-hmm. very famous for his kind of multiple narrators. This um, is Wilkie Collins, the author of the, the Moonstone, which some people call the first detective. That's novel. right. Um, and also of The Woman in White. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and, you know, which is also kind of part of the detective fiction tradition. Um, and, you know, this, this whole idea of, of using multiple narrators to kind of tell a story from different perspectives indirectly puts into question, you know, what, what is evident, what one person thinks is evident, may be undermined by what another person thinks is evident. Um, and, this, and his novels are very often direct responses to ideas about evidence in the law. So it, it seems as if we've got a, a legal discourse mm. whose job is to, to clarify, to get rid of doubt as far as possible. But what Marco is talking about is a literary discourse that's busy working in actually the opposite direction, saying that the truth depends on who's telling the story. Um, facts can be interpreted in different ways. There's no way of getting at a final statement of, of what's true and what isn't. I think that's right. I think you know, if you look at especially the Victorian fiction, you know, kind of responding to legal developments of the 19th century, Mm -hmm. you know, that is very much what was going on, that um, development in the rules of evidence elicited um, responses in the cultural domain, one of which was was literature. Um, Simon, let's get back to this question of proof, then, of of proving the facts, proof being a a synonym for for testing, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Say something about the, the the burden of proof in, in, in the courtroom and how or whether we actually arrive at proof mm-hmm. from evidence. So, I mean, what Marcos talked about, uh, this uh, diversity of, uh, of, of different truths that can uh, arise given a certain situation, that happens in trials as well. You have contradictory evidence um, and uh, the main difference, of course, is that with the trial process, there's a certain discipline to it. There's a certain strictness because the whole process is moving towards a single uh, end or conclusion. And that is the uh, the verdict of the decision maker, uh, mm-hmm. which normally would be uh, the jury. Uh, now it would be a jury in serious cases. And um, now... The jury, of course, they're not just told, uh, uh, you know, to find the truth. Um, I mean, this is a really interesting sort of debate uh, amongst evidence scholars. I mean, what, what is the purpose of a trial? Is it is it to find the truth or is it something else? And the, the, the general view is that it's not just about 
truths, and, and trials aren't just about truths. It's about uh, the application of formal rules, and the burden of proof is one of those very important rules because um, the, the evidence is tested by the burden of proof. And in criminal process, uh, we uh, say that the burden is on the prosecution to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, doesn't mean 100% certainty, but pretty close. Um, and uh, if you can't do that, the prosecution can't satisfy the jury with the evidence uh, uh, to arrive at facts that prove guilt, uh, then the default position is, is innocence, uh, or the presu- I should say presumption of innocence, uh, because it, it's, it's a presumption that we begin with as a matter of the common law. It doesn't actually mean you are innocent. Um, that's a really interesting and, and somewhat bizarre phenomenon, which actually this this issue of guilt or innocence has given rise to some interesting litigation in the context of wrongful convictions. Um, and I think people are well aware of uh, numerous cases around the world where people found guilty, served time in jail, and then either new evidence comes up, comes about and, and then they're found not guilty again. But there's a question, is, is it not guilty because the, the evidence was insufficient, that the evidence that the prosecution had used at the time would not satisfy the burden and, and the standard of proof? Or is it because they're truly innocent? And that issue can actually have implications for compensation uh, because governments will often say, well, this is just a case where the evidence was insufficient. And you sh- yes, we accept that you shouldn't have been guilty at the time, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean – that you're truly innocent and therefore we're not going to compensate you or, or we'll just po- compensate you a modest amount. Uh, so these kinds of characterizations about innocence, guilt, not guilty, presumption of innocence uh, are very important uh, in the legal sphere. So the presumption of innocence is related to the notion of the burden of proof, mm, right? Yes, yes. If, if I'm holed up in front of the court, I'm presumed to be innocent unless something happens. That's right. Unless, right. Well, unless the prosecution can prove that you're not uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, and so is that the same as tr- truth, truth as to you know, whether you are actually guilty of the offense? And what we find with the rules of evidence, because uh, the rules of evidence can actually block out a lot of uh, information that, that might be relevant. Okay. You've raised the question of the the rules of evidence, mm. so that, that we need to get this straight yes. in the legal context. Yes. Because in other contexts, there are different rules of evidence. Maybe we can come on to this in the scientific, for example. Mm-hmm. But in the legal context, what are the, the rules? Say in the Hong Kong jurisdiction, but presumably these rules are, go across jurisdictions yeah. in many cases. Okay. Yeah. Well, let me just talk in, in, in generalities. There's sort of two trends that we're that we've been seeing. Um, uh, historically, uh, rules of evidence were very restrictive in the common law system, uh, primarily because of uh, the jury system uh, and the fear that putting too much before the jury may overwhelm them and, and they'll reach uh, inaccurate decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were very restrictive. So the first trend is uh, we see that we see in modern times is the liberalization of these rules uh, because we seem to accept that, well, we, we can trust juries. Uh, judges instruct the juries on how to use this evidence. We can trust them. And hopefully you can get a result that's closer to the truth. And so that truth does matter. The other trend seems to be moving in the opposite direction where we say, well, tr- truth at what cost? 
uh, and it's looking at the uh, the legal system and and the verdict and verdicts from a broader perspective and asking is this a verdict that is not just true but also legitimate uh, questions of moral legitimacy uh, how did the prosecution come by the evidence um, and is this something that we can uh, uh, allow to stand in terms of the verdict given what, what, what would be some of the illegitimate ways of yeah. coming by the evidence so this is where uh, the, the discourse in human rights becomes very important so if you um, torture somebody exactly torture uh, but it doesn't have to be that far in fact the, mm-hmm. the, the, one of the oldest common law rules of admissibility is the voluntariness rule uh, where uh, courts were extremely concerned about confession statements and, and had said to uh, uh, prosecutors, uh, you know, if you if the police didn't obtain this statement voluntarily, and of course there was a very technical defi- definition of what voluntariness meant, but if it, it didn't meet that standard beyond a reasonable doubt, we had to be sure that it was voluntary. We're not we're not going to hear this evidence, or I should say, the jury's not going to hear this confession statement because confession evidence can be extremely compelling. Um, okay. I, I think you know what, what Simon's saying is extremely interesting, and you know, I mean, I think within the law there are you know, strict rules of evidence, and I think what underpins that the strictness of these rules is you know the notion of inclusion and exclusion. You know, certain things are deemed kind of you know insufficient as forms of evidence, so as to be excluded. You know, like hearsay, like character evidence, or you know whatever it may be. Um, and I think that that's a very inter- it make, that makes a very interesting comparison to you know evidence in other discourses you know which which um Douglas you know you, you brought up earlier mm-hmm. on that I think you know when we're thinking about evidence um in I don't know in literature in science whatever mm-hmm. it may be in history right? I mean there's a similar process of inclusion exclusion that goes on that when you're in the archives for example mm-hmm. you know you, you you not I mean there aren't kind of strict rules per se like there are rules about you know, the exclusion of hearsay evidence and when the hearsay evidence could be admitted. Um, but they are kind of ideas about what what counts um, mm-hmm. as as credible, you know, who wrote something, who said something, where was it written, in what context, right? So, I mean, ideas about inclusion and exclusion are at work, I think, in any and, form of evidence. And, and in humanistic research, for example, in archival research, what are the... They're not exactly rules, but what are the conventions that guarantee this evidence is kosher and another piece of evidence might not be? Um, I don't think there are rules that guarantee that certain evidence forms there, evidence there is kosher, which is certain, part of what's interesting. Yeah, there, there are as it were, professional conventions, are there not? For example, I... I can't make up a piece of evidence. There, was, there, was, there have been right. cases of this right. in the past where someone presents something as, an, as a, a result of archival research, which, in fact, they've conjured out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. That's obviously not admissible. And, in fact, if I did that, my career would probably be, uh, as a right. researcher, would be shot, wouldn't it? I, I think one of the things that, that's interesting is if you go into a court, say a court which Simon is prosecuting or perhaps you um, if I am to to be a witness before I give my testimony I have to make a statement um, that I'm going to tell the truth, I have to promise to tell the truth Yes. and that promise in Hong Kong has to be, how do I do it? Well it's either the oath where you are swearing to God uh, mm-hmm. or your creator 
um, or uh, the more um, uh, secular form, which is the affirmation, where if you were to lie under an affirmation, you could be prosecuted. The same with under an oath, but it's the penalty behind that. So this has, adds a kind of a stamp of reliability mm. uh, to what, what you're about to say. And, and it's because of this uh, convention that we've had the oath that we have the, the one reason why we have the hearsay rule. Um, which is one of your classic, very technical, legalistic rules of evidence, which excludes a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the rule which says that a statement that a person makes out of court cannot be used in the courtroom for its truth. So, for example, if someone who doesn't come to court as a witness, let's call this person Joe, uh, he says that the car that left the, uh, the scene of the crime was green, Right, uh, and uh, I am the witness, and I come to court, and I say the car was green, and then the court asks, "Well, how do you know that?" Well, because Joe told me that. Mm. Uh, that's not admissible. Uh, we don't know what the color of the car is. Joe has to come to court and testify. It's a very formalistic rule. Um, and, and again, as an example of that first trend that I talked about earlier, many countries around the world are liberalizing this formalistic rule and, and going to the heart of the matter. You know, let's look at if your concern is that it's not reliable. Well, let's look at what was, what was the context in which that was that statement was made, and are there guarantees of reliability that can substitute maybe for the oath uh, that allows us to at least accept it, and, and at least the jury can deal with it. Because I mean, Marco's talked about inclusion exclusion, but in in the legal process, there's a whole avenue in the modern context, a whole a whole area in the modern context where we talk about the weight of evidence. So even though the evidence is allowed in, it's included, but it comes in, you know, with varying amounts of weight. Mm-hmm. And and the judge, the role of the judges now, in addition to sort of as a gatekeeper of what evidence can come in and out, is also to provide these warnings to the jury to say this is, you know, yes, you can hear this evidence, but you've got to be very careful with it. Because you might misuse it. Um, okay, um, Mark, I want to come back to to ask you to talk some more about testimony. Um, when I said it in the introduction, I said we love evidence. I was thinking about the way that crime stories are nearly always about evidence. They're nearly always about the detective goes around and discovers something which which the case will turn. But also courtroom dramas. Now you're you're a, a lawyer who's also made a study of the way laws represented in mm. film and, and fiction and so on. Um, courtroom dramas, we love testimony. We, don't, we, we love the, the drama of the exchange between the lawyer and, and the witness. Yeah. The, the One interesting kind of uh, problem in the study of law and film um, is the inaccuracy um, of the, the, the depiction yes. of, of, of trial procedures, you know, yeah. and of what generally goes on in the courtroom. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching a course on law and film this semester, and that's something that you know, my students pick up on very early on in the course. So, you know, one of the questions that gets raised is, well, then what, what is the point? Right? And, and I think, you know, one response that law and film scholars have, have come up with um, is that, you know, obviously we're not watching these films in order to learn about what goes on in the courtroom. I mean, there's no illusion yeah. that this is mm. some accurate representation, or that this is evidence of what goes on in the courtroom. But I think it, it's, you know, to come back to uh, a point I made earlier, I think it's, it's more interesting to think of how, you know, something like a courtroom drama could 
question precisely some of the assumptions that are made in the law. So I'm thinking of a film like Rashomon, you know, to come if you would like an example. The Kur- Kurosawa. The Kurosawa film. Um, and, you know, what happens in that film is that, you know, there, there is a body found in the woods. You know, a samurai has been murdered. Um, and there are different people who purportedly were one way or another involved in the incidents. Yeah. You know, his, the samurai's wife, a woodcutter who, 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 who witnessed the incident. And they're all telling us what happened. And yet, at the end of the film, you know, all we know is that we can't know what happened, that the evidence and the testimony, in a sense, fails. So these are three or, I can't remember, three or four different testimonies in which the story is told and retold and retold. Exactly, from different perspectives yeah. by people who have a claim to mm. knowing mm. what happened. Right? Yes. And we come back to this distinction between facts and evidence that Simon made earlier, that they claim to know the facts, yeah. but what they present is evidence. You and I made a program fairly recently about Oscar Wilde. Uh-huh. I'm thinking of the fabulous um, uh, record of the the of Wilde's testimony in, in court. Really interesting because the first part of it, there's a a fascinating debate about art and literature and morality and the figure of the artist in which Wilde absolutely shines. But then when it comes down to the kind of sordid yeah. <laughs> material evidence, right. here's a letter that you wrote to some rent boy or, or something. Here we have this transaction and so on. Um, on the basis of the evidence, he, he gets completely destroyed. It's a very tragic instance of the, the drama of testimony. If you watch crime dramas, I watch lots of these things, nearly always the case turns on a, the production of a piece of material mm. evidence, a document or a, some kind of forensic bit, bit or piece. Presumably in, in actual law courts that doesn't happen so often. Very rarely. I mean, if there was such evidence, uh, that evidence would always be known to the parties normally. Normally. uh, It has to be disclosed. Well, the the prosecution has to disclose. In Hong Kong, we don't have a system of defense disclosure. But in practice, if if it's one of these sort of knockout defenses, Mm. most often defense would bring it to the attention of the prosecutor and something would be worked out. If if it shows clear innocence, the charge would be withdrawn most likely. Or there might be a plea bargain to a lesser charge because it's been made clear that the prosecution's case is weak. Um, So So we uh, wouldn't get these these great courtroom dramas. And also it's very unlikely. I mean this is advice to young lawyers or, or law students. Very unusual to have that cross-examination that gets the witness basically to turn their position around. That's, oh, that's very – the, the Perry Mason kind of you know, <laughs> cross-examination. That's very rare. It's very difficult to get that. You could weaken the witness and maybe nullify their evidence, but to get them to turn right around to be your witness is, is highly unusual. Oh, I'm sorry to hear this. <laughs> um, the, one thing I'd, I want to talk about um, before we finish because we're getting towards the end is the relation between – Evidence and expertise, the idea of the the expert witness, Um, because the expert witness is expert, I'd take it, in not in producing the evidence but in interpreting it, in reading the evidence, would that be right? That certain people have more authority in dealing with evidence. Than others, I think I think that's right, and I think you know the, the question of expertise, the re, well, the question of the relationship between expertise and evidence really brings to the forefront, I think, um, 
again, this distinction between facts and evidence that, that Simon started out with. And I'm thinking of something like, um, you know, I, I, I mean, one of my points of reference um, as someone working on law and literature is the Lady Chatterley's Lover oh, trial. Yes. Talk about that. Um, and what was interesting about the trial, so it was an obscenity trial. Um, this, is an, an, this is a novel. A novel written, written by, by D.H. Lawrence. Um, <clears throat> and the, the Penguin, the publisher, was, was kind of brought to court for having published obscene material. This is 1960 I or so. I think it was 1959, yeah. 1960. Right. Okay. Um, and, you know, so they had to have some way of determining whether this was, in fact, obscene or whether this was, in fact, or, or whether this was literature. Um, and the way the court did it was to have all these so-called experts of literature come in one after the other saying, oh, this is not obscene, this is literature. That, for me at least, it, it is problematic, right? I, I'm on what, I mean, of course, you know, um, that these people do have, um, you know, training and knowledge of, of what constitutes literature, but to take their word um, as kind of authority for for saying that you know this novel's literature is, is problematic. I think this, so. The the material evidence, the actual book, that wasn't in question. Any, anyone could see that or read it, and the fact mm. that the publisher had tried to publish it. But these experts, one after the other, who who were they? Um, I don't remember sort of exactly. Li- they were literary, literary critics. Um, there I was th- a bishop, I think I remember. Was, was That's right, and people, people, editors of um, of literary magazines, yeah. so people who were kind of in the cultural domain, yes. um, more more loosely. And and their job was one way or the other, because presumably they were different witnesses from either side were were, were brought up uh-huh. one way or another to interpret that evidence. In this case, the text of the novel, to say whether it was obscene. That's right. Um, well, and it was rather obscene, wasn't it? Well, I mean... But the, the, whether that obscenity could be overridden by... Right, so the question was, is, is there a literary value defence, yes. right? So if it is obscene, <clears throat> is it somehow salvaged by the fact that it is literature? Mm. And so what they were saying, or what, you know, the, what the, the, they were brought in to say was that this is, in fact, literature. And for me, I think, you know, the, the, the interesting thing happening within the courtroom there... Um, was that the interpretation was taken as fact. Yes, yes, yeah. From the lawyer's perspective, expert evidence, you have to recognize, is an exception to a Mm. general rule. And the general rule is that evidence should come from what the witness has observed. Um, And uh, an expert witness is not telling you what he or she has observed alone. The most important part of the expert evidence is the opinion. That's given mm. by the expert. An opinion essentially is a kind of inference that one right. draws from a series of facts and, and ex- from expert knowledge. Mm. But those kinds of uh, inferences uh, should be drawn and left to be drawn by the fact finder, which is the jury. Uh, and and so, so the problem in law with expert witnesses is that you have a great risk of this very authoritative person with a very lengthy CV mm. uh, uh, overwhelming the jury uh, and what is known as usurping uh, their mm. role, taking over their role. Um, and that uh, would 
you would, would be quite upsetting to the, to the, the fact-finding process. In, in the, the end, it, it is or must be the, the jury themselves exactly. who decide what the evidence means and what it's worth. That's right. And that's why you know, there's a lot of worries about uh, having too much expert evidence. Okay. We've used up all our time, so I have to say no further questions to my expert witnesses. Thank you both very much indeed, Simon Young and Marco Wan. I'd like to say also thank you very much to Cruz McAllister, my producer, for all her hard work on these programs since this is the last of this series. And finally, thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.